Have you ever experienced grief so deep and so painful you'd compare it similar to an amputation? That's how C.S. Lewis, the well-known 20th century Christian author, described the loss of his beloved wife in a collection of journal entries written after her death titled, A Grief Observed. In the book, Lewis tracks the process of his mourning. One reviewer explains it as a stark recounting of one man's studied attempts to come to grips with and in the end defeat the emotional paralysis of the shattering grief of his life. What makes Lewis's struggle so heartbreaking is the fascinating story that shaped the book between C.S. Lewis and the late Helen Joy Davidman, how they met, how they married, and how they parted. The two met when Lewis was in his 60s, his first and only marriage, and she in her 40s. They were both brilliant and extremely gifted, and they eventually came to uh, love each other deeply. But their love was doomed from the start of their relationship. The couple's union can be described as a deathbed marriage. Because at the onset of their plans to get married, the tragic diagnosis of Joy's metastatic bone cancer was made known. And they were told that she wasn't expected to live much longer. Miraculously, because of remission, the two had three short years together before she finally succumbed to cancer at the age of 45. I recommend you reading the book for more on Lewis's reflections, but in it he writes this profound statement. I thought I could describe a state, make a map of sorrow. Sorrow, however, turns out to be not a state, but a process. I think that phrase describes well our passage this afternoon, that sorrow is a process. Because what the psalmist experiences through his grief and the valuable lessons we are reminded of from our text is the important truth that C.S. Lewis draws out in his work and probably the most quoted phrase from his book. Lewis says, and I quote, You never know how much you really believe in anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. It is easy to say you believe a rope to be strong and sound as long as you are merely using it to court a box. But suppose you had to hang by that rope over a precipice. Wouldn't you then first discover how much you really trust it? We're continuing our summer series in the Psalms where we are covering 10 chapters each summer. And in today's text in Psalm 6, the psalmist who was all too familiar with deep sorrows processes his grief in light of his faith in God and comes out in the end with truer faith. The question for us this afternoon from Psalm 6 is, how do sorrows lead us to faith? How does grief, the painful and agonizing reminders that we are fallen sinners living in this broken world, cause us to trust more deeply on God? That is the guiding question for us as we examine our passage. So from Psalm 6, I want to share with you three promises to cling to in grief. Here's the outline so you can follow. Point number one, God is gracious. God is gracious. Point number two, God saves. God saves. And point number three, the king will return. The king will return. I pray that the truths of this psalm will remind you this afternoon that God is with you and with me, even in our deepest sorrows, that we are not alone. I pray that it will encourage you to pray and trust in him who knows and sees and leads you no matter what pains this world may bring. And I pray this psalm will remind us as a church of the amazing good news we have to proclaim for those of this world who struggle through sorrows of living in a sin-sick world. So without further ado, look with me and follow along as I read, and keep your Bibles open and examine with me Psalm chapter 6. To the choirmaster with string instruments, according to the Sheminath, 
a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. How does grief lead us to greater faith? Point number one, God is gracious to those who call on him. God is gracious to those who call on him from verses one to two. Look with me to those verses again. It says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? The context of the psalm is not specified. We can assume again, as we have in the previous three psalms, and according to our biblical knowledge, that the time David dealt with such agonizing grief over sin is based on the incident which we have been referring to uh, from Psalm 3 from 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 and the subsequent events of chapters 15 through 19. This is the fourth psalm of which that story is assumed and it's showing us David's ongoing struggle with grief and the prayers and the reminders and the trust in God necessary to deal with it. Isn't that so true of grief? For those of us who have experienced the death of a loved one or experienced something painful in our lives, grief doesn't just disappear overnight, does it? It certainly isn't lessened because someone is a Christian. As C.S. Lewis says, grief is like a long valley, a winding valley where any bend may reveal a totally new landscape. David is showing us how we ought to depend on God morning to evening, morning to evening, as the psalmist leads us through his mornings and evenings. As in Psalm chapter 3, verse 3, I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. As in uh, Psalm 4, 8, in peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. As in Psalm 5, 3, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. And again in Psalm 6, it's evening. And in verses 1 through 3, David is a man in great anguish because of his sin. He says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Some commentators say that David is in agony because of his physical sickness, as verse 2 may lead us to think. But a more thorough understanding, the reason for David's plea to the Lord in verse 2, heal me, and the reason why David's bones are troubled, and his soul is also greatly troubled in verse 3, was not merely because of physical sickness, but also a spiritual sickness, suggested by the psalmist's poetic expression from the bones to the souls, the material to the immaterial, was the result of sin's consequences. Moreover, that's the reason why the psalmist pleads, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger. Discipline me not in your wrath. You see, anger and wrath is not the typical way or the right way that a good God would discipline his children. 
So what the psalmist was experiencing and expressing was the affliction of the possibility that God had abandoned him because of of the sin that he had committed against the Lord. Well, isn't that our experience as well? When we fall into the deception of sin, we question God's presence. We question God's forgiveness. We doubt his love for us. How could God make me go through this? How could I put myself in this situation? But you see, God hasn't changed. Rather, it's us who change when we sin. The Bible says sin separates us from God, according to Isaiah 59.2. But not only that, sin separates us from others. It isolates us because of our tendency to hide sin. And that's where David found himself exactly on the run, away from others, because of his life was being threatened. But not only that, sin separates us within, internally. That's why the man, after God's own heart himself, was doubting God's love. And that's why David confesses, I am languishing. David was saying, I am weakening, I am withering, I am wilting away. And the word troubled is repeated twice, isn't it? In verse 2 and verse 3, for emphasis, which means to denote a great terror, a great anxiety or fear that has come upon David to the point his physical and mental and spiritual health was languishing. David prays, David pleads, heal me. Do you understand David's dilemma? Again, David was a warrior. Come on, he had fought hundreds of battles. He had killed lions and bears and uh, with his bare hands. He had defeated Goliath with a single shot from a slingshot. He was the greatest emperor of Israel's history at the time. The fact that his son Absalom and his men were chasing him down could not have been the anguish of David's bones and the trouble of David's soul. Think about how an experienced warrior would be acting in such a circumstance. He would be plotting a revenge. He would be strategizing a comeback. But why was David experiencing such uh, languishing? Why such agonizing? I think David had a right perspective of God's holiness and God's view of sin. I think David had a right response in knowing God's reaction towards sin. You see, so many of us who regularly commit sin and not understand how offensive it is to a holy God, some of us who think so lightly of our sin, unlike us, David knew the tragic weight and the devastating consequences of his rebellion against God. The only hope for himself from God's unrelenting wrath, the only way to pacify the furious anger of God on sin was not anything within David himself. David knew he could not work himself back into favor with God, you see. David knew there is no way to repair the broken relationship with God, but only, but only through the grace of God. The only hope for sinners is the grace of God, is it not? Amen? So many lessons to be learned here. Learn David's posture of humility and awareness of his offense. Learn David's understanding of what it would take to reconcile his relationship with God. Brothers and sisters, do you experience the languishing weight of your sin against God? Do you embrace it? Do you understand the utter offense your sin causes God? And the irreparable rift that is made when you disobey God's word? make light of sin, and choose sin over God? Well, the grace of God is the only reason sinners like you and me can stand in the congregation of His holy sanctuary. Grace is the only reason why you can utter words of prayer and praise to the purest and the holiest of God. 
This is the guarantee of God's elect. Amen? That when we call on Him, even in our sin, He hears our cries for help. Isaiah 30, 19 says, He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as He hears it, He answers you. For God's children, this is what it means. From His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, according to John chapter 1, verse 16. This is what it means. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness, according to 2 Corinthians 12, 9. What gift to know, is it not? Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Hallelujah. As Richard Sibbs, the 16th century Puritan, famously says in a similar way, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. What comforting words for sinners like you and me. Amen. Brothers and sisters, is anyone here experiencing grief over sin? Whether grief over your own sin or whether grief over others' sins in your life, whether ongoing struggle with bouts of depression and loneliness and anger and bitterness because of the result and the presence of sin in your life and all around you, pray, pray, pray to the Lord who graciously hears our prayers. Cry out to the Lord in desperate plea to carry you through as you experience His discipline in your sin. That's what Micah prays in Micah 7, verses 7 through 9 and on, one of my favorite passages in Scripture. Micah prays, But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I sinned against Him until He pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to light. I shall look upon His vindication. Those, are basically, uh, those verses are basically the summary of Psalm 6, isn't it? For the people of the world, grief leads them to despair. For the people of the world, grief leads them to depression. Grief leads them away from God and eventually to death. But why does grief lead us, his children, to greater faith? Because for God's children, grief leads us to grace. Point number two, why does grief lead us to faith? God saves us for the sake of his steadfast love. God saves us for the sake of his steadfast love, verses 4 through 7. Look at verses 4 through 5 again. It says this, Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol who will give you praise. David requests of the Lord to turn from anger and reminds himself of who God is, the deliverer of his life. David acknowledges that death is the imminent reality as he's being chased by his enemies for his head. David is aware that death is his certain and inescapable future because of his sins against God. Yet he prays, doesn't he? Save me. Again, the warrior king David is very well aware of his situation. His fear wasn't cowardice. His agony wasn't spinelessness. Just like when a thief breaks into your house in the middle of the night with a gun, you don't arrogantly flaunt your confidence and strength at the robber who is holding a gun to your head because you know you are at the mercy of the one who holds the gun. Your only choice is to beg desperately for mercy and cry, save me. David rightly feared the judgment of God towards sin. He is modeling for us rightly how we ought to plead desperately when our griefs are too great to bear. 
Lord, save me from my misery. Save me from my sins. Save me from my enemies. Save me from death. What an example for us to not to give up on ourselves. What an example for us to not give up on God. What an example for us to not to give up on our future. David could have chosen to take his own life as many uh, dishonored kings would have done in those days. David could have chosen escape, but why not? Because David remembers God's promises. David recalls God's covenant. That is what is meant when David says, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. The word for steadfast love, uh, there is that famous word of the Old Testament, hesed, God's merciful, gracious, loyal, infinite covenant love for his people. God's unfailing, steadfast love for you and me who trust in him. Well, David remembered the promise that God spoke to him through the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 7. Now, turn back uh, with me quickly to 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 8. And I'll tell you uh, in a while after we read this why this passage is so important. 2 Samuel 7, verse 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pastures, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. The violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you, when, uh, you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. The reason why I had us read that long passage is because only in light of David's remembrance of God's covenant with him does verse 5 in Psalm 6 make sense. Look back at Psalm 6 verse 5. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol who will give you praise. David recalled God's covenant. David remembered God's promises for his offspring in which a kingdom would be established forever. And David says, if I die in my sin, if I die in my dishonor, if I die in my despair, what's going to happen to your covenant? Who will give you praise and sheol in death apart from God's presence? Okay, this is some serious stuff, so listen very carefully. I think David knew he wasn't the one whom God would establish his forever kingdom. David knew it would be his offspring. And David remembered God's promise in 2 Samuel 7.15 that his steadfast love will not depart from him. And that's why David prays, For the sake of your steadfast, unfailing, hesed love, save me. Brothers and sisters, this is a glorious lesson. David is teaching us and modeling for us of how we ought to pray. 
not based on our merits, not based on our state, not based on our works, not based on our feelings, but based on His promises, based on His steadfast love. You see, God is a God of His Word. As it says in Deuteronomy 7, 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. Mark that verse down, Deuteronomy 7, 9. But there is more to this truth, more to this psalm, more to David's experience. Right after those glorious verses, the next two verses that follow seem a bit strange, a bit interesting. Look with me there to verses 6 and 7. It says this, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. You see, I shared with you the introduction of C.S. Lewis and Joey Davidman's story because aside from a real-life situation, it's hard for us to imagine a grief uh, such, a, such a devastating grief that causes such sickening sorrow, such weariness from moaning. As David confesses every night, flooding my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. Another translation says, I swim in my tears. David says in verse 7, my eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. You see, David's eyes are so puffy with swollenness of tears from his grief that his eye, his vision is wasting away. It's, it's weakened. That's what he's describing. Okay. Well, is David being a bit too dramatic? Come on, David. Man up, man. Why are you crying so much? Well, remember this. David is no sap. He is no coward. Let me ask you, uh, brothers, a question. Raise your hand if you think you are the machoest man in this room. Anyone here conquered empires? Anyone here kill lions and bears with your own hands? Anyone here kill a giant? A giant? Okay, I'm guessing no one. You see, my point is made. David was not a coward. He wasn't over-exaggerating. But what King David is, and here's the point, David was a prophet. He, as other prophets who experienced personal tragedies in their own lives, like Elijah, like Jeremiah, like Jonah and Hosea, to name a few. David was also one who was pointing to the one. In John 12, the passage that our sister Linda just read, in John 12, verse 27, Jesus himself, as he enters Jerusalem in preparation for the cross, in preparation for his death, actually turn to John 12 real quick, uh, starting in verse 27. Let, let's read that real quick. Uh, Jesus recites David's very words from Psalm 6-3. And Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? And quoting Psalm 6-4 asks, Father, save me from this hour, as David had asked. But Jesus, instead of save me, declares in the face of death, but for this purpose, for the purpose of the salvation of sinful men, I have come to this hour. While David prays, save me, Jesus says, save them. And he says, Father, glorify your name. And I don't know why we miss this next verse in John chapter 12, verse 28. You see, we're familiar with God's audible voice, which is recorded only three times in the Gospels in the New Testament 
Uh, first, at Jesus' baptism. Second, at Jesus' uh, transfiguration. But this instance is rarely remembered. God the Father responds to Jesus' prayer audibly. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Brothers and sisters, Psalm 6 is one of seven penitential psalms. It was a psalm used by the Israelites in worship to express their corporate lament and penance, set to string instruments, most likely harps. But I believe Psalm 6 is also a prophetic psalm, pointing us to the purpose and details of the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. As David experienced the utter languishing of griefs and sorrows, he pointed forward to the man of sorrows, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the son of David, in whom God the Father established his kingdom forever. Hebrews 5 verses 7 through 9 says of him, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Isaiah 53 verses 4 through 5 speaks of him again in prophecy. Prophecy because it was written about him hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. It says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the best news you will ever hear. That God, who is holy and just, created all things in love for his own glory and our pleasure. But man, having been tempted by Satan, chose to trust in himself, wanting to be a God for himself, deliberately disobeying God's word. As a result, we are separated from God, completely helpless and incapable of saving ourselves from the vain and dissatisfying power and curse of sin. That's why nothing on earth satisfies. The more you have it, it's not enough. But God, in his mercy, had a plan from the very beginning to redeem us and forgive us for our sins. Sins of the past, sins of the present, and sins of the future. How? By sending his own son, Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we should have died, and he took our place as a substitute on the cross. He paid the debt that we would have paid in eternal hell, but death couldn't depress him, Satan couldn't stop him, the, the grave could not ground him. On the third day, Jesus Christ rose again from death, which meant that God accepted his sacrifice, which meant that Christ defeated sin, Satan, and death forever. That's why you can't visit this historically most significant man to ever live's tomb anywhere. He's not there. He is risen and he ascended into heaven as the King of Kings and the sovereign Lord of the universe so that he would be the source of eternal salvation for all who would obey him. That whosoever would repent and believe in him will not die and go to hell, but participate in his resurrection and live the abundant life here on earth and forevermore. If you're here and you're not a Christian, welcome. We're so glad you're here. It's not a mistake that you are here today because God doesn't make mistakes. And we, we've been praying for you. The person who brought you here or invited you here have been praying for you. Friend, perhaps you are here today and know the griefs and sorrows this world has brought on you. Perhaps it's sickness, physical, emotional, or mental. Perhaps it's something that was done to you. Perhaps it's a past mistake you couldn't recover from. 
Sure, you can continue to ignore it, deny it, or minimize it, but your life won't get any better. Your life won't get any easier. Nobody is going to hand you second chances. That is, except our God. He sent His Son for you, to die for you, to forgive you of all your sin. Sure, your life here on earth may not change much, but just as David knew, he knew what mattered. Despite his past failures, he knew in God's grace, he had God's forgiveness. So friend, if you are not a Christian here today, I want to ask you, do you know the joy and peace that comes through reconciliation with God? To know that God of the universe, the creator of everything, will not be angry with you nor punish you for what you deserve. If you trust in Christ, the only way to life and salvation and eternal life, that peace, that joy can be offered to you. Let me just reiterate what thousands of people and hundreds of people who have experienced this reconciliation uh, can testify that no one else, history will show that no one else is coming for you. Nothing else will be your answer. No other religion, no other cultural trendy thing, no other governmental policy will give you this kind of freedom and joy and peace. Only Jesus. So friend, Repent of your sins today. That means to turn from looking and going back to your sins. Believe with everything you got that Jesus' death and resurrection is indeed the only way. And trust Him with your life today and tomorrow and the next day and see how your life changes for the good. It's really not about you doing anything. It's about you trusting Him for what He can do and will do if you surrender your life to Him this moment today, right now. Talk to me or someone with a smile if you want to know more about how to follow Jesus. At the end of service, I'll be standing uh, right there in the back at the, at the door. Please don't let this day go by without asking someone how to follow Jesus. How does grief lead us to greater faith? For the Christian, for the children of God, grief leads us to the man of sorrows. Grief leads us to the Savior, Jesus Christ. That's point number two. Point number three, finally, how does grief lead us to truer faith? The king will return to judge his enemies. The king will return to judge his enemies, verses 8 through 10. Look at verse 8. It says, Depart from me, all you workers of evil. This verse is a direct reference in Matthew 7, verse 27. It's pointing forward to the eschatological reality when at the end of days, Jesus, the risen, ascended, and reigning king, will reveal himself as the king and judge of all. As I've said it before, the last book of the Bible is not revelations, it's revelation. The revelation of Jesus for who he is, the king of kings and lord of lords. When all of our faith will turn to sight, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as lord. And so in Matthew uh, chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. In simplicity, what Jesus is saying is you are not a Christian, you are not a child of God, simply because you say you are, or, or because you did a bunch of Christian religious things. 
You are a Christian if your life shows it, if your life proves it. There are so many Christians who claim to be Christians today or say they believe in God, but they simply don't do what the Bible says. They don't love God. They don't love His people. They don't humble themselves before God, His church, and share His good news. John 14, 15 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It doesn't mean you won't make mistakes or sin in this life, but it does mean, just like David, you go before God in repentance again and again and again, just like David did, until your grief turns to truer faith. That's why in another psalm, in Psalm 30, 11 through 12, David testifies, You turn my mourning into dancing. You remove my sackcloth and clothe me with joy. That's why David rejoices at the end of Psalm 6, at the end of verse 8 and verse 9, with such confidence and hope. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. And brothers and sisters, that kind of confidence and hope and joy is available to all of God's children. You see, David's doubting has turned to faith, faith that God has heard his prayers. John chapter 9, 31 says, We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. You see, the truth that God answers our prayers is a good sign that he is with us and for us. Because God, it said, as it says, uh, doesn't listen to the prayers of sinners. So brothers and sisters, How blessed are you, how privileged are you to know that the Lord hears our prayers? Now that's a thought worth pondering about, isn't it? The question is, does God answer your prayers? If not, why not? When's the last time you can honestly say God answered your prayers? Better yet, when's the last time you sincerely prayed to God and you received an answer? If you can't remember at all, like the Lord has never answered your prayers. Start by repenting today of your sins. If you're a Christian and it's been a while, search your heart carefully and the scripture uh, to see why God is not answering your prayers. Again, maybe you don't know that he's already answered you. God usually answers uh, prayers in three ways. Yes, no, and wait. So if you aren't sure, Uh, that God has answered your prayers in in one of those three ways, yes, no, or wait, talk to someone who can help you discern. Finally, look at verse 10. David says, All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Again, this is pointing to the eschatological reality of what will certainly happen when Jesus will return as king, the king of kings, for the second time which is what all Christians should be waiting for. The gospel, you see, is not just some old story about an old man of an old religion written in an old book uh, of a man dying on a cross. The truth of it, the truth of it is still today ever so real and available to us now. Some translate the phrase in verse 4, Turn, O Lord, to return, O Lord. So just as David cried out at the end of verse 3, But you, O Lord... How long? Well, Jesus came to save all of his desperate and needy children 2,000 years ago. And here's the guarantee, here's the promise that Jesus will return again. How long? How long is the question that David asks? 
And Jesus answers that very question in Revelation 22, 7. He says, look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this book. You see, to the one who is looking, to the one who is keeping the words of this book, the answer is soon. Amen. See how at the end of days, at Jesus' return, the tables have turned. It says in verse 10, All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Whereas before, David was ashamed and greatly troubled. On that day, all the enemies of God will be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. This is foreshadowing how in the moment Jesus returns, their crushing will be so quick and so satisfying and so certain. No remnants of them, the enemies, will be left whatsoever. All KO. How does grief lead us to great faith? Because on that day when the King of Kings arise, when the King of Kings returns, when the King of Kings is revealed, all of our griefs will have its end. Our faith will finally turn to sight. As John 16, 22 says, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Brothers and sisters, this is the hope that we have to look forward to in Jesus' return. So in our grieving and in our waiting, Let's remember who our King is. Let's cling to the promises of who our Jesus, the Messiah Christ is in our griefs, that he is gracious, that he saves, that he will return again. Let's pray.